Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Mobile Home Park Investing Weekly Podcast. We'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Bupp, and in today's show, we're going to be speaking with real estate investor and entrepreneur, Mike Johnson. Mike's main purpose in life is helping motivated people escape the rat race and retire within 12 months, no matter how long or how much money they have now. Through his website and blog, perpetualsaturday.com, Mike shares the details on how to accomplish this and much more. Mike's primary investment vehicle of choice is income property, more specifically mobile home parks as the vehicle to get early retirement. And I want to read a quick blurb from Mike's website as it will really help paint a better picture of who Mike is and and what he stands for. Okay, so here we go. Financial freedom is heaven. I know this because I live there. No more Mondays. It's perpetual Saturday here on the mountain. No dress code, no boss. No having to be somewhere. The border collie is my coworker. Jeans are my uniform. And the schedule is whatever I decide to do, wherever I decide to do it. Today, I decided to write you from the skybox living room of my log home. 1,400 feet above the valley, framed by 12,000-foot snow-capped mountains just outside Yellowstone National Park. I'm immersed in my dream, an early retirement in a location I love, with a woman I love, and a home that I love. I retired eight years ago after establishing 95% passive income streams. I own three mobile home parks that each have a manager. My only job is managing my managers. This is done mostly by phone and email. I no longer work any schedule. I don't have to leave the mountain unless I want to. My income rolls in each month and far exceeds my monthly bills. And guys, there's much more of Mike's story on his website. I just wanted to read that quick blurb for you. That just gives you a basic overview of who Mike is and how he's used mobile home parks to, to you know, get, reach his financial goals and live out the life of his dreams, which I think is what all of us are really chasing after. Whether you know it or not, that's really what you're chasing after, right? So I'm anxious to get onto the show with Mike, but before we do, here's a quick word from our show sponsor, Sunrise Capital Investors. Hey guys, Kevin Bupp here with Sunrise Capital Investors. As you are hopefully already well aware, if you've been a listener for any period of time, My goal has always been to provide you with as much value as I possibly can through my two podcasts, Real Estate Investing for Cashflow and the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. As our audience continues to grow, literally, we've been downloaded millions of times by folks in over 125 countries. I've had thousands of people reach out looking to get involved in our niche. And that's the phenomenal niche of mobile home park investing. For those that don't know, I've been a full-time real estate investor for nearly 20 years now, and I've personally invested in and have owned apartment complexes, various commercial properties, hundreds of single-family rentals, and I've interviewed some of the most successful investors in just about every other asset class, and I've arrived at this one very simple conclusion. Mobile home parks are hands down the best investment I've found to date. Why? They provide investors with the best risk-adjusted returns out of any other real estate sector that I've seen. Investing in real estate can get complicated, and I really want to simplify this process for you. 
If you're someone who wants to diversify away from the uncertainty of Wall Street and allocate a percentage of, of your real estate portfolio to mobile home parks, but maybe you don't have the time nor the inclination to personally locate good deals yourself, then our team will do it for you. At Sunrise Capital Investors, our team specializes in the acquisitions and management of undervalued and highly profitable mobile home parks. And we are now providing accredited investors with an opportunity to participate directly alongside our team in our up-and-coming deals. And let me say this. I believe that we are hands down the best in our space at sourcing highly profitable off-market deals. That's really what makes us unique in this niche and as investment managers. As stewards of your capital, we truly are aligned with our investors. We've structured our investment fund so that we as a company are incentivized in the same way the investor is, which is through the performance of the investment itself. In addition, we want to make sure that we not only make money for our investors, but that they understand how it's being made. That's why we provide our accredited partners with a private monthly podcast that walks them through the detailed updates on how their investment is performing. And we're very transparent, providing you with the good, the bad, and the ugly at times. And so if you'd like to learn more about the partnership opportunities with our team here at Sunrise, please go visit sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and click on the investors link to get signed up. It's absolutely free and you'll get placed on the priority list of when new opportunities come along. Also, feel free to call us at 833-CASHFLOW without the O. Again, that's 833-CASHFLOW without the O. And one of our investor relations team members will help you schedule an appointment to speak with one of our managing principals. If you have questions, go ahead and schedule a call and let's get on the phone and talk. And with that, guys, I'd like to leave with one last thought. From the time that I wake up in the morning to the time that I lay my head down the rest of the evening... My number one priority with everything I do, whether it be recording this podcast, working for our investors, helping each of you reach your investment goals, to providing a great experience to each of our residents who reside in our communities, is to add huge amounts of value to everyone that I come in contact with. Now, with that being said, I look forward to the opportunity of bringing value to you through Sunrise and through this podcast. Thank you for your time. Now, let's go ahead and get back to the show. Okay, guys. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest for today's show, Mike Johnson. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. Really excited to, to dig into your story a little bit. I, I spent a good bit of time on your website and you remind me a lot of myself. You're basically utilizing mobile home parks to live your dream life, right? And uh, your dream life is in Wyoming. You're coming to us today from Wyoming, from your, your log cabin up on, uh, you know, up on the hill in the valley. And that's the exciting part about this is the opportunity that this particular investment vehicle offers us. And uh, there's many different types of real estate out there that one can invest in. But today we're going to specifically talk about mobile home parks. And so, Mike, before we dive into, you know, why mobile home parks, like why you chose that asset class or that, that investment vehicle, maybe just take a few minutes and let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's hit rewind and go back in time a little bit and uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and who you are. Um, I've always had a, a big work ethic, you know, I always just kind of dove in. I was the kind of guy that would just jump into a situation and then uh, through the work, learn how to do things better and how to advance. You know, I'm a high school graduate. I never went to college. I actually re- recommend that that journey because you can uh, learn faster and go farther, I think, when you actually are getting real experience than theoretical experience. But so I started... Um, you know, shoveling snow like kids do. I had paper routes, you know, when I was 11. And I started at McDonald's. They had a fantastic management training program. And I worked my way up there. And 
I was a store manager of a McDonald's with 50 employees uh, by the age of 21. And I really enjoyed that company. And then I went on to 7-Eleven and I managed 55 stores for them, the district manager. But I always wanted to be a writer. And I was while I was at 7-Eleven, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and I would give the first hour of my day to my writing dream. I didn't go to school. I didn't take classes, but I immersed myself in the study. I'd read good writers. I'd practice writing. I'd, I'd read about people that had already succeeded as writing. And I just found that pattern worked real well for me. And eventually I've, it, I grew into that enough where I thought I could actually quit and, and do well with it. Well, after a year, I didn't have enough clients. And so I was right back to square one again. It didn't work out. So we uh, went to work for a little newspaper on an island. And my scheme was it was a 10-hour-a-week job as a typist. And I thought if I could just get my foot in the door, I could become a reporter for him. And sure enough, that worked. And then within a year, I ended up getting fired by the editor. Her and I just didn't hit it off. It's the only job in my life I ever got fired. So being young and impetuous, I said, well, crap, I know how to start a newspaper. Fire me, will you? I'll start my own paper, <laughs> which turned out to be a mistake because I never did a business plan. And if I'd have done that, I'd have noticed we'd have been doomed. So for three years, we did the futile effort of creating a newspaper that worked for everybody except us. It was an economic <laughs> disaster, but it was quality, creative. It was a blast. The public loved it. So it worked for everybody except us. And we actually filed for bankruptcy in 1996. So we had zero in 96. But the day after our bankruptcy cleared, I got a freelance writing job that paid more than I'd earned at that 7-Eleven corporate job for only 20 hours a week. Well, how'd that happen? Because I had turned myself into the writer that I had wanted to be during that newspaper experience. So then we had the chance because of the bankruptcy to start to move anywhere. We moved to Cody, Wyoming, 30 miles from Yellowstone Park is where we live now. Cody's 50 miles from Yellowstone. And um, I did the writing. I really enjoyed it freelance. But then we started a trolley tour business. We noticed an opportunity in town. The first year we broke even. The second year, sales tripled. We owned that business for nine years. It was really sweet. Six months off, six months on. Very good income. But I thought, you know, as good as this is, you know, I just don't want to be somewhere on a schedule all the time. So I started looking into passive income. I stumbled upon mobile home parks. I stumbled upon the creativerealestateonline.com website. Immersed myself in all of their information, met Lonnie Scruggs through his books, mm -hmm. Deals on Wheels, Making Money on Mobile Homes. And I thought, you know, I think mobile home parks is the ticket. We looked at four parks before we ended up buying one. And sure enough, we bought a fixer-upper that, you know, had a lot of old trailers and a lot of problems. And for three years, we just threw all the money it earned back into the park to fix it. And when we sold the trolley tour business in 2009, we started drawing money out of that first park and we used the trolley money to buy a second park 20 miles away. And at that point we were retired in 2009, just managing two trailer parks. We've since bought a third one. So now we just have three parks and that's our world. Okay. Well, fantastic. That's, that's a great story. God, you, you've done quite a bit at your young age, <laughs> Mike. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, good deal. So I want to talk about I want to talk about that first park. You know, that really lays the foundation of that transitional point in your life. And you obviously researched, you, you had mentioned a website. Was it creativerealestateinvesting.com? Was that the website? Yes. 
CREonline.com. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And so I'm assuming that there's probably some other types of real estate you looked at as well. What what really made you land on mobile home parks? I wanted the cheapest possible cost per rent stream. Okay. And, you know, I saw, you know, so many people do houses, but there's hardly any cash flow on a house. Mm-hmm. And then if you have one house and it turns up vacant, you're 100% vacant. So that's no fun. And then if you buy apartments, which are classier than mobile homes, because you can get nicer units and, you know, they have a better reputation. But they cost way more per rent stream than a mobile home lot or a mobile home trailer. So I realized that the number of units, the number of rent streams you get at the cheapest possible price, the more of those you can get, the closer you can get to an instant retirement. Mm-hmm. No, that, yeah, that, that's, that's great advice. And so talk to me about that very first one. How, how large was it and uh, what did you end up paying for it? Sure. Um, it was 32 units. Okay. And it was... Um, a fixer-upper. It now has 36 units. We've added four. But it had 1970 trailers. You know, it was uncapped. Mm-hmm. had a lot of wild cats. The roads were rutted. Some sketchy tenants. We didn't have any experience in rentals before we jumped right in. It was $400,000. And what we did is we went to the bank, and they would cover 70% of the appraised value. We convinced the seller to carry 30% of the second mortgage. This was back in 2003, we bought that park. So we really only had to put down $1,000 to buy that park. They put a $50,000 reserve on our loan where we could draw from it because it had a sketchy septic system. Mm-hmm. We knew we'd have to replace that. And uh, at closing, we closed on the fifth. This is a Lonnie Scruggs tip. If you close on the fifth, the seller has to collect all of his rents. Yeah. And then at closing, he has to give you the 25 days of rents and he keeps the five days. So we ended up with the deposits he gave us and the rents he had to give us. We walked out at closing with 6,000 cash. <laughs> so we haven't, we haven't had a penny of our own money in that park since the instant we bought it. So the return is infinite. Creative financing is a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> it is. That was a sweet, sweet one. So when you when you when you know, you mentioned that it was a it was a fixer upper. Give me what your definition is of a fixer upper, because every, everyone has a different perspective of what that really means. But from your standpoint, from that first park, what did that mean? Well, the magic of it was is the cash flow. That was the key thing. We got it at a good enough price. I didn't understand cap rates or any of that back then. I was just flying from the seat of my pants. So there was some fortune involved that. The seller knew that his park was defective, so he was very motivated to sell. And he set a price that was probably less than what a normal cap rate should have been for that particular park. But fixer-upper was, you know, we had some drug and crime problems. We had some vacant units. But the park generated $8,100 a month, and the expenses were like $5,100 a month, including mortgages. On the, both mortgages. So it was 3,000 positive cash flow the day we stepped into it. So that allowed us the buffer to, we lived off our trolley to our money, didn't have to touch any money from the park, and we just plowed it all back in by painting units, repairing units. We bought appliances about every for every unit. This was a park where we owned about 80% of the okay. trailers. And I don't do that anymore. My other two parks are lot rent only, they're a lot easier. You make a little less money, but there's far less moving parts, far Mm -hmm. less time invested. So we worked on the tenants, and every time we changed out a bad tenant, we raised the rent in that trailer about a hundred bucks because the seller had kept his rents under market rent to accommodate the fact that you know they weren't in great shape. 
So over time, we just kept raising rents, reinvesting. After six months, we put a manager in there. So she ended up handling 90% handling 90 of the tenant duties. And that made life a lot better too. Did you pull that manager in from uh, inside the park? Was it an existing resident or from the outside in? I think we found her outside and we had a vacant unit that she wanted to rent. So she came inside, which worked out just perfect. And she had the demeanor of a tough person at the beginning of the time there in that park. You needed somebody that didn't necessarily have polished people skills, but had the guts and the gumption to go out and knock on doors <laughs> and do it, say what needed to be said. And over time, we've eased into managers with better and better people skills as our tenant qualities. <laughs> so you had mentioned that that park was predominantly park-owned homes, uh, rental homes. Is it still that way today? Or have you over time tried to convert those park-owned homes into tenant-owned residences? Yes, it is predominantly. I'm probably about 75% park-owned homes. Okay. It's got seven log cabins, so you're never going to sell those. It's got a double wide and it's got some good trailers right on the river. This is five acres on the river. So we have tried to turn them over by owner financing and we end up getting about half back. That's a ratio. Yeah. They'll make a few payments or half the payments and something will happen where they have to move out of state and you get the trailer back. And sometimes it's in better condition. Sometimes it's worse and you turn it over again or you run it again. Mm -hmm. So we just haven't had fortune to, to get rid of those units. So we just, okay. we just, I know one of the big fears that a, not, a lot of new park investors have is private utilities. And you had mentioned when you purchased this park, it had a failing septic system in place. And so can you speak a little bit to that? And you obviously knew going into it that it had a failing system because you'd mentioned that you put a reserve aside or the bank forced you to put a reserve aside to essentially fund that uh, when the time came. And so talk to me a little bit about that septic system, how you overcame that fear uh, being that it was failing. And, you know, no one likes to think about the idea of, of sewage, you know, raw sewage, not finding its place in the ground, but rather above ground. So talk to me about that a little bit, because I feel like that scares a lot of people away right out of the gate, you know, as far as public utilities are concerned. I mean, it, it worked out well for us, but yes, it was a big learning curve. We had an engineer before we bought the park take a look at the septic system. And he said, you know, based on what I see, you can replace your leach field here for 50 grand. So that's why we set aside 50 grand. Well, when we actually went to do it, it turned out that we couldn't replace the leach field because it was too close to the river. So we got bad information that made mm -hmm. us comfortable enough to close. And then we had to overcome that hurdle after we bought the park. But the fortune was that our second loan had a five-year balloon payment. So we had five years to increase the value of the park to refinance to pay off the seller's second mortgage. So we knew right from day one that we were on a mission to increase the park valuation, the value of the park. And we knew that was done by raising rents, converting utilities over to the tenants, and then cutting expenses where you could. So we were on that program and we did well with that. So what happened is, is within the five years, the old septic system hung in there. The new system, I either had to put in a treatment plant, which would be $250,000, or I had to hook the city sewer for $300,000. And the reason it was so expensive was because city sewer was located on the other side of the river, 1,400 feet away, 75 feet higher in elevation. So mm. it's about worst case scenario. <laughs> Many permits, Corps of Engineers, the city, the county, the state, DEQ, we yeah. got all that in line. I hired an engineer to do all that. And the total cost was about 300 grand. And uh, they just plowed under the river. 
and uh, closed off half the river with balloons. Wow. Put the pipes underneath there, closed off the other half. They were done in about two or three days. I thought, holy mackerel, this is my introduction to big boy toys. So now I don't have to worry about sewer. And the beauty is, is the park went from 400000 value to 900000 within the five years. So I could easily handle the three hundred expense. And then the additional payment for the refinancing, that extra 300000 was made up for by rent increases within a year and a half or two years. So mm-hmm. it was a bump in the road that we don't even look at anymore. And it solved a permanent problem. And we feel good because there might not have been too many people in the world willing to do that. And if they hadn't done that, the, those tenants might have had to move. The park might have had yeah. to close. And so I've got two questions relating to that. Number one, if you would have known about not being able to put another leach field in, you know, for that $50,000 per that engineer's bad information, would you have closed on the park? And then number two, what advice would you give someone uh, going into that particular situation on their first park? Go ahead and, uh, you know, obviously based on accurate advice from, you know, from experts and engineers, would you advise a new investor tackling such a large project. I mean, it's, um, it's a lot to swallow, right? There's some, there's some lost sleep at night, probably with a project of that size, I would guess. Right. Yes, I would do it again if I knew the park was going to be worth 900000 five years later. But if I didn't know that in advance, then okay. it probably would have scared me off. What I suggest people do when they're looking at a park is, is they find out the plumber and the sewage guy that the current park owner already has call that guy and just talk to him, ask him if there's any problems he knows because you can't see underground, obviously. And this, the, the new plumber that is going to be working for you, hopefully is going to spill the beans and you get some info. Also, I'd talk to the city to find out where the closest sewer hookup is. If you're on a private septic. Also, I'd look at where the nearest water is to make sure, because that was, I could have, you know, leach fields are cheap relatively. But if you're close to a water source and you can't do it, well, now you're pushed into a whole nother game. The reason we didn't go with water treatment, even though it was cheaper, is because the treatment people could not guarantee that we'd satisfy the EPA at the other end of the stream when they tested our water, mm. even after we spent all that money. So to get certainty, we spent yes. the extra money to get city sewer. So those are the things I would recommend to, to people How are you- looking at. Okay. How were you able to fund that large of a capital project and that size of a deal at that point? Because you hadn't refinanced it yet to get that capital out of it. Was there some type of state funded program to help you fund that connection or was that just done out of pocket? We actually did refinance to get that money. I'm thinking maybe we did it in year four or year five. And at the time we paid off the sellers, we got enough money to, to take care of that sewer problem. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Talk to me a little bit about the second and third park. I mean, obviously, I know one of the things that you had mentioned that kind of changed with your business model as you went from that first park that had mostly park-owned homes to one that is, I believe you said 100% tenant-owned homes in, in the second and the third park. Are there any other big shifts that you made based on your experience with that first park when considering the second and third parks? Yes and no. Um, the second park, of course, um, it- Location was important to me. I wanted something close and I got fortunate. You know, a couple months before we were going to close on the trolley sale, this park popped open for sale. I mean, I live in a small area. Cody, Wyoming's population 10,000 and Powell, Wyoming, where I have my own other park is 6,000. 
So A, to get a park that's available is just incredibly fortunate. And then to get one that pencils out is, you know, doubly so. Sure. So it was meant to be. The one in Powell has 48 units. The fellow was selling it for 950. And we had a big chunk of money coming from the trolley. So we knew we could handle a down payment. But of course, we try to go into these deals like the first deal with as little money down as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, he wanted some money down, but we had it. So it was okay. But we said, well, how'd you come up with 950? And he said, well, that's what my financial advisor told me I need to <laughs> make $4,000 a month was what I want to live on. I said, okay. So I bonded with him. And I, it's very important to bond with your seller because Absolutely. if you get seller financing, he's not going to do it unless he bonds with you. Mm-hmm. And so we were nice and we asked questions. And, and when we went back and penciled it out, that park was worth about 650 you know, on a 10 cap and it wasn't perfect. It had some problems, but so we convinced him that it was worth 650. We convinced him that we would, we would pay him the 4,000 a month if he would finance it. So he'd get the four grand he needed, which was about 500 more than what a bank loan would be. Mm. But then we didn't have to go through banks. Yeah. So we gave him like 180 down. He financed it. We gave him his 4,000 bucks, like 6% interest. So he was happy. We were happy. There was no bank. We closed in 30 days. Life was good. Have you since refinanced out of that, that seller finance note? Yes, I did. And I've gotten my 180 out of it. And it's in the basement of my log cabin with a nice <laughs> remodel we did down there. So, so okay. I have no money in that park either. <laughs> got it. Got it. And that, those two parks, that, that park and then the third park, are they both on city utilities? Yes. Both of them, okay. City Water, City Sewer. Okay. I've learned that too. <laughs> gotcha. So that was a big shift in your in your business model as well, just staying away, at least at, at this point in time, from any private utility setups. And, and I'm assuming you're not scared of private utilities. There's just a lot of variables that are involved. And as they yes. age, you know, which a lot of these parks were built, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, a lot of them have the original, you know, whether it be septics or treatment plants or lagoons, uh, they all have the original equipment still there, some with replacement parts, but for the most part, it's an aging system that probably is on the last leg of its life for the most part. Yeah, I can be sure. Yeah, yeah. So any advice on owning rural parks? I mean, you mentioned that your first park in Cody is a population of about 10,000. The second park, and, and forgive me, I don't recall the name of the yeah, city, Powell. but about Powell, about 6,000 population. Talk to me a little bit about the marketing. We kind of rely on digital Mark, you know, di- digital marketing such as Craigslist, right? And uh, you get in Wyoming, and I'm assuming there's probably not a lot of Craigslist markets in Wyoming to, to do marketing on. So as far as having vacancies to fill up, so talk to me a little bit about how you kind of manage that strategy of getting the word out that you have vacant lots or vacant units in any of your parks, when I'm assuming that in Cody or Powell, you probably don't, you can't lean on the, the digital marketplace like a Craigslist or, you know, some of the other, you know, mediums that are out there. And Powell, that's that's my easiest park to run. It came with 48 units where people owned all the units. It stays full. Um, it's a college town. I never have to advertise anything out there. In Cody, I have a website for my park so I can advertise my own vacancies. And what I do is I advertise in the classified newspaper here in Cody with the website address. So I give them the teaser, the prices, quick description, and then they go to the website to get the pictures and a deeper, deeper experience. We also do a little Facebook. Okay. Um, I was going to ask code. that. Yeah. Um, we just have a real small Facebook page and 
just when we have trouble with the newspaper, the newspapers sells 90% of our vacancies. So newspapers really aren't dead, especially in small markets like you're in. I mean, I'm assuming that most of the used and, you know, whether it be used cars or, or, you know, gadgets or even rental homes, most of that stuff probably transacts through newspapers and classified ads still, correct? Yes. And what I love about a classified ad is that, you know, you're talking five bucks an insert, so it's real cheap. But when you can put your website in there, your website is free, but it's got all kinds of information that you could have never afford to print in the newspaper. So just a little website gets gets you a lot of bang for your buck. Have you utilized any paid Facebook marketing, like local marketplace marketing? I haven't yet. I haven't needed to. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Good deal. So talk to me about one of the biggest mistakes that that you've come into as far as in the park business itself. I mean, whether it be financing or operationally, the biggest mistake, if you could just pick one, I know that we all make mistakes, right? On a regular basis, we're not learning a progressive, we're not making mistakes, but if you could just take that one big, biggest mistake that stands out in your mind and then what happened and how you overcame that? Well, other than the septic system that we talked yes. about, I mean, financially, you're never going to have something bigger than 300,000. Hopefully a, not. A problem. Um, <laughs> right. right. But I guess it would be um, to get systems to take care of tenants that aren't paying on time. We have big hearts and we work with people when they have payment issues. And we've learned over time that we can extend them within that same month. As long as they pay within that same month, we can work with them. But we've found that once you extend them more than that 30 days, you know, your odds of getting your money back drop by half easy. So we'd be a little quicker on the on the limits that we put on people, how long we'd carry them. So basically you give them 30 days and then the first of the coming month, you go ahead and just file the notice of eviction. We don't even do that. What we do is 99% of the time, I just write a letter if I want to evict somebody and they leave. In 15 years in the business, I've only gone to court twice. Wow. It was both in the same week. And luck would have it. I just had tenants that I evicted that would not leave in the Powell Park and in the Cody Park. So we said, well, we're going to learn something new. We're going to go to court. And we won both those cases. Now we know how to do the process. They both got out. We've since replaced those units and um, life is good. So we just have had luck with just sending an eviction letter if they have to go. And then they usually pay. Or if if it's a park-owned trailer, what we get them to do is to sell their trailer to somebody else that we pre-approve. He said, you either got to haul it out yourself, which is too expensive for him to do, or you got to sell it to somebody we improve, you know, or you can pay us and get back on track. Those are your choices. Mm-hmm. So if they yeah. sell it, we still get our lot rent. We don't lose it. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's a perfect scenario. Do you ever find yourself just buying the unit from them? That way you just avoided even potentially leaving the park? Yes, that's what I did in the yeah. Powell situation. They were so bad. I gave them $500 walking away money. I got their title. I flipped it to somebody else, got my 500 back, and then I let her rent that trailer to people in my Powell park. There you go. Bada bing, bada boom, right? Right. right. <laughs> Talk to me about finding the right managers to oversee your parks. I mean, I think that's one of the bigger struggles when you getting that first park, maybe not so challenging, got a lot of dedicated time to spend with finding the right fit of, of a manager and working with them on a regular basis. But scaling to the second park and into the third park becomes a little more challenging to to dedicate the time needed, not just to source the right manager, but to oversee them. And so talk to me a little bit about your strategy on finding the right fit for overall managers in your parks. 
I always look at the tenants that are in my park. I've had managers that live outside the park and managers that live inside the park and mm-hmm. inside is far better. They're really? more on top okay. of everything. And if I find somebody that is proud of their property, if the property looks good, we're still mom and pop operators here. So we still have a lot of tenant interaction. So we have an idea of who we have and where. So we, in the back of our mind, you know, we always have two or three people that could be management candidates if the need arises in the future. So it's just learning your tenants. And those are the people we look to first. Okay. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting because we've had to, I'd say that we've made a big shift in our company over the past probably two years to where initially we used to only focus on managers from within the park. And it really depended a lot on the more value add of, you know, I guess more fixer up, I'm using your terminology, the more of a fixer upper that community was, the more challenging time we had finding a manager within that park that could essentially, that had the right attitude and had the right you know, I guess perseverance to push through the challenges of fixing that park, right? Getting it back on track and back on the rails again. And so bringing some, someone from the outside in that didn't have any previous contacts with the residents, weren't friends with any of the, you know, the troublemakers of the park. We had a lot better luck with bringing people from the outside in rather than hiring from within. There have been a few communities where we've had great success with hiring from within, but most of those have been more stabilized communities, communities that were already running very smoothly, were kept up well. In that situation, you know, there there wasn't a lot of uh, cleaning up to do, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, we didn't have to ask someone to turn against their friends or their neighbors and essentially, right. you know, start handing them infractions notices or evictions notices right. because they weren't complying. And so in any event, I've, I've heard many d- different mixed stories of what works and what doesn't work. And I think really what it comes down to is just, figuring it out, right? Like try both and, you know, like put ads out there in the outside world, reach out to the local, you know, the, the, the residents that are internal in that park and see if there's a, you know, see who's, who you feel the best fit's going to be. And uh, sometimes it's trial and error. Sometimes you're going to pick a manager and they're only going to last a couple months and then you just made the right choice or they weren't the right fit. You go find someone else. So we've gotten pretty good at it here moving forward, but um, definitely had some challenges in the beginning with finding the right on-site managers. I, w- I want to talk to you now, Mike, about just shift gears a little bit, talk to you about the importance of life-work balance. And I know that's a, that's a big theme on your, on your website, on your blog, is about basically utilizing income property, mobile home parks, to essentially allow you to live the life of your dreams. And just talk to me a little bit about how, how you live that on a day-to-day basis. I mean, what does that look like for you? And you know, how do you stay on track? Like, how do you stay on track all these years as you were building you know, the trolley business and then buying that first park, second park, third park? I mean, you have set goals, obviously. And you stayed on a very specific direct path to get there and to reach those goals. Talk to me a little bit about that and the importance of it you know, any advice that you could give to those that are listening that have similar, you know, life goal, life goals of their own that they'd like to achieve? If I could do it all again, I would, I would realize that my, my ultimate goal here is to have financial and time freedom. And I worked far too hard going in too many different diversions before I realized that I should have been going directly to financial and time freedom from day one. I'm 61. I've been retired almost nine years. And what I've learned from rich dad, poor dad is you don't need to save that big nest egg and then hope the interest funds your life passively. A much faster and more secure path is to just figure out a way to earn enough monthly passive income to exceed your monthly bills. Once you've done that, you're free of jobs and work schedules forever. 
And that's why I say that can happen within 12 months, because basically you're only one good property away from financial and time freedom. Mm -hmm. You're still managing your manager, but that only takes about 5% of your time. You're still looking at the park, you're paying attention, you're making deposits, but you're one property away. And that if I was 25, I would have bought that one property when I was 25. Mm -hmm. So my day today, I make deposits. When I ran 7-Elevens, I learned that, you know, 80% of all shortages in a store are caused by employee theft. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty particular about who handles what money in my business. I like to keep my hands on the money. And I manage the manager. And that's by email and telephone call. I don't have to go to the parks. So I have total control of my schedule every day of the week. And then there's chores to keep the keep that passive income spinning. Make your deposits, talk to your manager, make sure you're full, deal with issues that arise that the manager can't handle. So there's these chores that I work into whatever free time I have in my day on scheduled time. So you actually do have a hand in the money then. I mean, you don't, it sounds like you probably still accept cash. Is that, is that true or is it just checks and money orders? Um, at one business, at one park, um, one here in Cody, where I feel like I have my hand on things the most. I'll let that manager accept cash, but I don't like it. And we minimize it. And Mm -hmm. it's usually just for people that are are paying late where you're making a collection already and you don't want to, you know, take a chance of not getting anything. So you take the cash. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. What are some words of wisdom, Mike? I mean, if you if you were going to speak to someone that was first getting in, you know, they're looking to dive into this business. They, they've done their research just like you and I had. We've looked at other investment vehicle types, but they've really, they've basically chosen mobile home parks as a route they want to go. What kind of words of wisdom or advice might you give that new potential mobile home park investor? Sure. I'd say get up at four o'clock in the morning before you do whatever you're doing in your day. And I'd give that first hour to your mobile home park dream. I'd immerse okay. myself in the study. I'd be reading books. I'd be reading websites. I'd be reading success stories. I'd be reading how-to articles. And then I'd be visiting parks. I'd be talking to bankers. By immersing yourself in the study of it, you're going to learn extremely fast. And one or two visits with sellers, and one or two visits with bankers, just quadruples your information. And mm-hmm. it also builds your, your confidence. People only reach for stuff that their self-worth allows them to reach for. So when you immerse yourself in this every day, you become more confident. You feel like, you know, this is more realistic. This could happen. I'm worthy of this. And you get, it's confidence and self-worth. That's how far you reach. The bigger that is, the bigger you reach. People say, well, let's start small. Well, it's no easier to buy a big, a small park than it is a big park. It's mm-hmm. the same paperwork. It's the same approval process. It's the same talking to people. So take the biggest bite you can so that you get the biggest reward for your effort. So I'd say immerse yourself in it, buy the biggest possible park you can, and try to get owner financing so that your money goes farther. And I'd start sooner, as soon as you possibly can, because time is worth way more than money, way more. Yeah, that and it's we're in a very unique asset class. You know, mentioning the time aspect of it, we're we're in an asset class that has a diminishing supply, which is kind of unique. There's no other types of real estate out there that have a diminishing supply, meaning that there's more parks that are going away, you know, shutting down, getting redeveloped into higher and better uses than there are that are being built. And so, not that you know, twenty years from now there's going to be zero parks left. That's not the case, but 
there's an opportunity today to get into this business, to, to take over those fixer-uppers. There's still a number of them out there. Lots of mom-and-pop-owned mobile home parks that haven't been run in a professional manner that, you know, like, like Mike runs them or like we run them in our business. And uh, they can be cash flow machines. And uh, that's, that's really what this, this podcast is really all about, investing, finding that investment and building that cash flow stream, that passive income stream that allows you to live the life of your dreams, just like we talked about with Mike today. So Mike, this has been a, a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And for those that want to learn more about you, is the best place to come find you is perpetualsaturday.com. Is that the best yes, place for yes. them to reach you? Yes, okay. that's my website there. Yes. Okay, guys. Well, then again, you can go learn more about Mike and his company. He's got a lot of information on that website, just lots of words of wisdom on his website, perpetualsaturday.com. And Mike, that's all we have for today's episode. I really appreciate you coming on and joining us. Uh, but, but guys, real quick, before we say goodbye, just I want to remind you of that free gift that we offer to all the listeners who, who take the time to leave a five-star rating review on iTunes. We'll go ahead and give you the exact cold call script that we use in our very own mobile home park business. We do a lot of direct mail, a lot of cold calling. We deal with brokers as well. But a number of our communities that we own in our portfolio today were purchased by cold calling owners and building rapport with them. Uh, just like Mike had talked about, building rapport is so, so very important in this business. But we'll give you the exact cold call script that we used when we call on new mobile home park owners. And all you need to do to redeem that gift from us is after you submit your review to iTunes, go ahead and send us an email to gift at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Just tell us who you are, what screen name that you use to leave the review. And we'll send that cold call script out to you right away. Also, you can stop by the Mobile Home Park Academy website, which is mobilehomeparkacademy.com. And you can listen to all the previous podcast episodes that we have. I think we've got over 90 now. You can also download a free copy of our popular ebook called The 21 Biggest Mistakes Investors Make When Purchasing Their First Mobile Home Park and How to Avoid Them. And I'd say that if you're getting into your, your very first park, as we talked about with Mike today, Lots of unknowns can come to come to light. You know, one being private utility systems, that septic system. That's one of the 21 big mistakes that we have in our book. And we talk about it in great depth there. So be sure to grab that book. Again, mobilehomeparkacademy.com. And Mike, thank you again for, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to, to keeping in touch with you here in the future. Okay, my friend? Okay, thank you, Kevin. Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com, to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.